0: Well, I'm curious this morning. Uh, who is excited that fall is officially here? Anybody? Now, the weather, the temperature maybe not, but the trees are changing. I am so pumped that fall is here. Uh, my family loves this time of year. Uh, this week, I actually asked my wife and kids. I said, "What is your favorite thing about fall?" And) uh, I want to share their answers with you this morning. My wife, uh, she loves the fall crisp air, the cool air, you know, the season's changing. And uh, she said anything cinnamon flavored. And so uh, that can be something you eat. It can be something that smells like cinnamon. She just loves cinnamon. Uh, Micaiah, my oldest son, uh, a short teenage answer, food. (laughs) He loves food. He's a foodie. Uh, He said especially Thanksgiving, which is you know, a ways off. You'll have to wait a little while for that, but um, I, don't, I don't know if anybody else does this, but sometimes we do like a pre-Thanksgiving meal just to make sure we get it right and uh, and. Be primarily because that's what I request, and then I get to eat it. So it's amazing. Uh, Weston loves to go to the apple orchards to pick apples, and then he loves eating those little cinnamon donuts. I don't know if you've had those, but warmed up, man, those things are great. Throw some ice cream on top. It's even better. And uh, we went to an orchard yesterday, so he got to pick some of those out. Uh, Phillip's uh, the thing that he likes is something we do every year as a family. We call it our family leaf contest, and so as as the leaves change, uh, when they're in, you know, full color, um, we go out, we'll take a hike, and uh, I don't tell my kids to take a hike, but we go out and take a hike together, and they'll pick out their favorite leaf, and then Faith and I get to judge which leaf is the coolest, and we each pick one. It's just fun. He loves doing that, and then Elliot, our youngest, Um, He likes our annual family hike that we do. Uh, We go up by the the shrine in La Crosse. It's a beautiful area, a great place to walk. And, uh, And then he loves going to the apple orchards as well. And so I'm curious this morning, and maybe your neighbor is more curious, turn to the person to your left and tell them your favorite thing about fall. And if you don't have someone on your left, turn to the person to your right. But go ahead and share this morning. What's your favorite thing about fall? And if you're watching online, you can type in the chat. Let us know what your favorite thing about fall is. All right, I heard, uh, I heard some pretty cool things. I've heard hunting a little bit in the group. I've heard food. Um, something else that somebody wants to share, what's your favorite thing about fall? What was that? Snow. Snow's coming. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness, not yet. <laughs> Typically in October, we'll get a little bit. What, what's one other thing? What are, you, what are you excited about this fall? Apples, what'd you say? It's just cooler. Yeah, it's cooler outside. One other thing, what are you excited about? Leaves changing, the colors, man, all all great things. You know, for me, um, I love working in my office this time of year, and even into winter, like looking out the window, watching the leaves change uh, when it starts to snow. Snow is coming, for sure, if you live in Wisconsin, Um, but I love seeing that, and uh, some people say, you know, it's sweater weather, and uh, I like to say it's tea season, so I like to drink hot tea in the morning on Sunday morning before service starts, Uh, just spending time with family and friends, and then I, I think intentionally slowing down a little bit, you know, and and being content with the season that God has our family in, and that's our biological family and our church family as well. Yeah, I think we would all agree that most of the year, uh, we live in a culture that encourages us not to be content. We live in a culture that encourages us not to be content. We're we're constantly being fed false truth claims uh, that more is always better. Sometimes more is better, but more is not always better. You know, more money, a bigger house, having the latest toy in the garage, getting that promotion at work. Sometimes these can be very positive things, but not always. Over time, I think we become dissatisfied with what we have or with the season that we're in. We inevitably become discontent. And so today, we're going to talk about an important truth from God's word. Uh, The Bible clearly teaches us that God wants us to learn how to be content. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, is just one passage that highlights this wonderful truth, and it's going to serve as the main text for the message today. Now, when we read this passage, there's one verse that will stand out to you. Chances are it's a verse uh, that you've heard many times before. It's a verse that's been written in greeting cards. It's been posted on Facebook a million times, uh, shared before major sporting events. I'm going to go ahead and read that verse for you. You're going to recognize it. Philippians 4.13, For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. This is a favorite verse or a life verse for many people, and I think for good reason. The Apostle Paul's words in Philippians 4 are very powerful, but for us to understand this verse, we need to look at the context that surrounds it. I've said many times before, it's important that we always look at the context before we jump straight to the content, because this is one of those verses that I think far too often is read, it's used out of context. And we try to apply it to just about anything in life, but Paul said these words um, as it related to a specific aspect of life, a specific season that he was going through. And so what I want to do together this morning is we're going to unpack this passage, and then hopefully when you leave today, you'll have a better understanding of not only what this verse means, but how to apply it to your life. And so let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in to the text. Um, Heavenly Father, I just pray for our time together today. I thank you for bringing us together. I know that there's a lot of sickness going around right now. There are many people in our church family uh, who are out today, and so we certainly pray for them, pray that they would recover well and soon. Um, Lord, I ask that you would bless our time today, that you would help us to understand your word and then how to apply it to our lives uh, so that we can glorify you And that we can be uh, the people you've called us to be. And so we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. Are you ready to learn what this verse is all about? I heard like two people over here. Are you you ready to learn what this verse is all about? All right, I am too. Let's do it. Beginning in verse 10. How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you've always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. And then here's that famous verse For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. It has a little different meaning when we read it in context, does it not? The Apostle Paul wrote the letter of Philippians to a group of Christians in Philippi, uh, which was located in Macedonia. You can think of modern northern Greece, if you can picture a world map. He wrote this letter, oddly enough, often called the letter of joy while he was chained up in a Roman prison cell. Now, Someone's chained up in a prison cell writing a letter. Joy is not typically the word that comes to mind. He wrote this letter to encourage and strengthen other believers by showing them that true joy comes from knowing and living for Jesus, not from our circumstances. Man, if there is something that I pray that you would grasp this season, it is that. That our joy does not come from our circumstances. It comes from knowing and living for Jesus. And so, with this in mind, let's break down this passage. Verse 10, Paul wrote, How I praise the Lord. He was able to praise God, to worship God. That you're concerned about me again. I know you've always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. So sitting in a prison cell day and night, Paul was able to praise God, to worship God, and find things that he could be thankful for. In this case, it was his friends in Philippi. How many of you are thankful for your friends? I know I am. I'm thankful for the people that God has put in my life. That is always something that we can be thankful for. And I don't know if there's a better example in all of the New Testament For how regardless of the troubles that we face, the difficulties that we face, there is always something to be thankful for. Amen? So when you're going through that that life storm, what is it that you can thank and praise God for? I think it's good for us to think about these things ahead of time. It's like doing the work ahead of time. So when the storm inevitably comes, we know exactly what we're gonna say. We know exactly how we're gonna respond. If you like to journal, not everybody does, but if you like to journal, try writing down one thing every day uh, throughout the rest of this year, one thing that you can be thankful for. People often do this in November. That's kind of tradition, it's habit, but you can do this and should do this year round. We ought to. Verse 11, we'll continue. Paul said, not that I was ever in need. And then listen to this. For I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. Did did Paul say, you know, I was born and I just was born knowing how to be content? No. He learned how to be content. If I was in a similar situation, I don't know if I could have responded like this. I would have wanted three meals a day. I would have wanted a hot shower at least once a day. My favorite movies on demand. (laughs) You know, the things that we think we need, but or maybe more greeds. Paul was able to say, Not that I was ever in need. So he's chained up. He's chained up in a prison cell and saying, Not that I was ever in need. For I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. He didn't allow his situation to steal his joy or rob him of being content. He continues in verse 12. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. So two extremes here. Almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. Paul learned how to be content. And based on his story and his example, I don't believe that contentment is something that we're born knowing how to have. I just look at my own life. What I've found is that discontentment is what comes so naturally to all of us. Contentment is not a natural thing for people. We like to gravitate towards discontentment. According to Paul, contentment is something that's learned over time. And so the question becomes, how do we learn contentment in the way that Paul knew contentment? Well, look at verse 13. It's, again, that famous verse. For I can do everything, and what's the phrase? Through Christ, Christ who gives me strength. I can do everything through Christ, who gives me strength. Here's that, that verse. This verse contains the secret to learning contentment. The secret to learning contentment is rooted in knowing and living for Jesus. Paul was living one way as a Pharisee, someone who sought to destroy the church, persecute Christians. He was living one way and he encountered the risen Lord and his life was completely changed. And guess what? God was helping him learn contentment. Contentment can never be found in our circumstances. It can never be found in our human relationships as much as we want it to. It can never be found even in our possessions. And so like Paul, I believe that we too can learn contentment. And so before we talk about some of the ways that we learn contentment, or what I'm going to call contentment conquerors, I've used that phrase before. I hope it's familiar to you. I want to talk about two things that will kill your contentment. We're going to call these contentment killers. And we want to stay away from these. Number one, if you're taking notes, uh, chronic complaining kills contentment. Chronic complaining kills contentment. If something is chronic, what does that mean? Well, it means it's naturally and constantly recurring, right? If somebody is sick with a chronic illness, it's constantly recurring. If someone is a chronic complainer, what does that mean? Well, they constantly complain. There are many different types of chronic complaining, but I want to share four of them with you this morning. And here's my challenge as I do this. It's not to think about the person sitting next to you. It's not to think about that coworker who in your eyes may be a chronic complainer. The goal of this uh, lesson, the goal of this exercise is for you to look at your own life and to see if you fit anywhere on this list. I know I do. And so The first type of chronic complainer is what I'm going to call the whiner. Uh, the whiner wakes up ready to complain about something. In fact, if they weren't complaining, they wouldn't know what to do. All right? This person, I often think, isn't happy, oddly enough, unless there's conflict in their life. Unless they're complaining about something. And so that's the whiner. And then you have what's called the martyr. This person says, no one appreciates me. All I do is give. Nobody ever gives back. The martyr wants others to notice their sacrifice, their service, their hard work, and to recognize them for it. And so they complain. And then you have what I call the cynic. The cynic believes nothing will ever change. That that's just your lot in life. If you're going through one of life's storms, that's just the way it's always going to be. Their situation will always stay the same. They typically have a can't-do attitude. And, and I've seen this play out in the church many times over the years. Um, say a, a group wants to start a new ministry. And somebody says, well, we've always done it this way. That's never going to work. We've always done it this way is not a good reason to not do something. Or this is the way we've always done it. How many times have we heard that? All right, there's this can't-do attitude. Maybe you have tried uh, something before and it didn't work, and you want to try it again, maybe in a little different way, but you say it's just not going to work because it didn't work before. They have a can't-do attitude. And this plays out in our family. It plays out in our relationships, our work. The cynic believes that nothing will ever change. They complain about it all the time. And finally, you have the perfectionist nothing is ever good enough. Nothing is ever good enough. They, they don't trust other people to help and they're never satisfied with the results when they do. Now, I'm going to be completely honest with you this morning because I've asked you to, you know, evaluate your own life. Where do you fall on this list? I see myself in one of these and that's the perfectionist. There's a lot of times that I feel like if I'm not the one doing it, it's not going to get done right. And so I've got to be the one to do it. And when it comes to ministry, I, I'm learning how to give ministry away. Right? That as the pastor, it's not all on my shoulders. That we're, we're the body. The body is made up of many parts, isn't it? And we need every one of those parts. And so I have to resist the urge to be a perfectionist. And to realize that if somebody else is given an opportunity to serve or to do something, or to start a new ministry, um, that maybe, just maybe, God is actually using this person, and I'm not the author of the universe. So where do you fall on this list? Think about that this morning. These are four types of chronic complaining, and all of which, again, going back to the main point, will kill contentment in your life. If you wake up every day ready to complain about something, that's going to kill contentment. If you're the martyr, no one ever appreciates me, that will kill contentment in your life. If you're the cynic, nothing will ever change. That will kill contentment. If you're the perfectionist, that'll kill contentment. So what does God's word say about complaining? It says a few things. Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Again, in context of this letter, how appropriate is this? Paul wrote, do everything without complaining and arguing. Everything. Did he say do some things without complaining? Or, you know, do the easy things without complaining or the hard thing? No, he didn't. He said do everything without complaining and grumbling. Why why is that? So that no one can criticize you. He's talking about your faith, your witness. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Guess what? There are enough complainers outside the walls of of this building. We need to be different. God wants us to be different. Do everything without complaining and arguing. Again, the Apostle Paul writing from a a Roman prison cell, sharing about how he learned how to be content in any situation. Now, it's one thing to complain every once in a while. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Like every one of us, we're going to complain probably many times throughout the rest of our lives. It's going to happen. That's part of our human nature. We're going to give in to sin. We're going to fall short. It's going to happen. It's not an excuse to complain, but it, it will happen. So it's one thing to complain every once in a while, but it's a completely different thing to be a chronic complainer. And really it boils down to this, that complaining is a choice. Chronic complainers miss out on the promises, the blessings, and purpose of God in their lives. There's an Old Testament story that comes to mind I think is a great example. It's one of my favorite Old Testament stories. In Numbers chapter 13, uh, Moses sent out 12 men or 12 spies, uh, one representing each tribe of Israel. And he did this so that they could explore the land of Canaan. This was the promised land that God was giving to his people. He had this amazing promise that he was giving to them. Now, their mission in being sent out was to explore the land and bring back samples of the crops that they had found, bring back some kind of report. Well, after they explored for 40 days, the men returned and they had a report They actually confirmed that the land was, in fact, beautiful. It was everything that God said that it would be. Had everything they would need to survive and thrive. But there was one problem. The current occupants of the land, they were very large, and they lived in these cities that were fortified on all sides. And So they were scared. Even though God had promised this land to his people, uh, 10 of the 12 men... 10 out of 12 were scared and they found something to complain about. Their complaining was so loud, the Bible tells us it affected the entire community. It didn't just affect their own lives or their own families. It affected everybody. People were weeping out loud. The Bible tells us that people were crying throughout the night. They were losing sleep. They were protesting this decision to move into the promised land. Some people actually said out loud they wish they would have just died in Egypt. And then a group got together and they were trying to plot how to find a new leader. So of the 12 men, only Joshua and Caleb trusted God's plan. The others, they complained. And in doing so, they missed out on God's promises, his blessings, and purpose in their lives. And maybe you're thinking, well, complaining, surely it doesn't have that much of an effect on a community, on a group of people. Well, guess what? The only two people out of all of these people who were allowed to enter the promised land were Joshua and Caleb. That was the only two. Complaining literally altered their life. With school being back in session, there's a lot of kids and families who are fighting Uh, illnesses right now, fighting colds, things like that. We've got a lot of people out today who are are sick. I've found that there are two things in life that are more contagious than being sick. We get so nervous about being around people who are sick, and sometimes I think we have our priorities wrong because there are two things I think that are more contagious. One is encouragement. When you decide that you're going to be an encourager, when you decide that you're gonna be a person who is grateful and and thankful, that that spreads like wildfire. And you can see it on someone's face when they walk in the room, if this person is an encourager or not. (laughs) The other thing that I think is more contagious than being sick, can you guess what it is? It's complaining. One person deciding to be a chronic complainer in a group a faithful people can alter the direction that the entire group goes. Complaining can and will affect everybody else. A handful of complainers will completely alter everything. Chronic complaining kills contentment in our lives. The second thing that kills contentment is comparing. A couple of C words today. Comparing. Comparing kills contentment. When we start to compare our lives to other people, that will kill contentment so fast. So comparing your job, maybe you work with someone and you think, "Ah, I'd like to have what they have, but you don't. Comparing salaries, comparing spouses. We laugh, but it happens. Comparing possessions, uh, spiritual gifts. I see this all the time in the church. You know, someone's asked to maybe step up and serve and do something in some way, and they're like, well, if I was more like this person, or if I had their gifting, then I could just do it. You know, Jim is, is out sick today. He's our worship leader. And I was, like, a little bit nervous this weekend because we had to get a group together, and he said, hey, do you think you could help lead a little bit? And, and like, I love music. I think you guys have known that since day one, but I don't, I'm not comfortable up here leading and singing. That's not what I'm comfortable doing. And I find myself comparing myself to other people at times. Well, if I, if I was only this good, if I was as good as, you know, Chris Tomlin, <laughs> then maybe I could, lead, if I could lead worship for a group of 130 on Sunday morning. <laughs> God says, no, I've given you everything that you need. You just need to be faithful. And some of you are thinking, well, wasn't that good? You know, you're right. <laughs> but God doesn't care. Because it's about the heart. So comparing will kill contentment. Like comparing churches. It kills contentment. When we start to look at the church down the road and we say we want what they have, we want to be like that, that will kill contentment so fast. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. That word understanding in the Greek is wisdom. When we compare our lives to other people, The Bible says we are without godly wisdom. We're seeking man's wisdom. And so God's wisdom is not comparing ourselves with others, but finding our identity in Jesus. It's so easy to compare ourselves with other people, especially in the culture that we live in. And one of the ways that we compare ourselves with others, I think more than anything else, is social media. It's social media. It's by far the worst. I mean, people will post things on social media about their family, the vacations they take, the house that they live in, the restaurants that they eat. I've been known to take photos of food every now and then. (laughs) The clothes that they wear. And then what do we do? We, We immediately start the comparison game. I wish I could go on that vacation. I wish I could live in a house like that, in a neighborhood like that. I wish I could have clothes like that. When we compare our lives to others, what happens? We actually allow others to steal our joy and to rob us of contentment. We need to remember that joy is found in Jesus, not in our circumstances. It's not found in having what other people have. It's important that you and I don't allow others to steal our joy by feeding us a false identity. When we compare our lives to others, when we're envious of others, it will steal our joy and kill contentment. And plus, we all know that most of what other people post on social media are only the parts of their lives that they want other people to see, is it not? Nobody ever posts a photo of them arguing with their spouse. Nobody ever posts a photo of their kids hitting each other and yelling. I've had people in our church say, man, your boys are so well-behaved, they must just be amazing. It's like, you don't live in our home. (laughs) My boys fight all the time. What you see on Sunday morning is typically Sunday best. But let's take off the mask. Let's just be real with each other for a little while. We're messed up. We need Jesus and we need each other. And we should be able to come as we are. And so what people post on social media is typically the things that they want the world to see. It's the 1%. That's what we all do. But it's not reality. Reality is what happens the other 99% of the time. So how can we learn contentment? That's, you know, those two things, it's kind of the negative part of the message, but I want you to be aware of it. I want you to think about those things. What's the encouragement? We're going to call these contentment conquerors. Uh, Number one, choose contentment in Jesus over contentment in the world. Choose contentment in Jesus over contentment in the world. And so in this point, one of the two things listed here um, will always fail you. The other will always fill you. Can you guess what it is? One will always fail you, the other will always fill you. See, finding our contentment in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, as King Solomon talked about, that will always fail you. Finding your contentment in Christ will always fill you. Learning contentment always starts by choosing to focus on and think about the right things. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. I've got these verses written in my office this year, and I'm going to refer to them, you know, many times, but this is what we read, that to always be joyful, never stop praying, be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. So if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, God's plan for your life is that you would be joyful, that you would never stop praying, that you would be Thankful in all circumstances. That's God's will for your life. And choosing to give thanks and find contentment in Jesus, this isn't some worldly self-help book, right? You don't go to Barnes & Noble and just find this on the shelf right when you walk in the door. It's meant to be the daily attitude and response of every follower of Christ. And so no matter what's going on in your life this season, and it may be terrible, there's always things that you can be thankful for. Can always choose contentment in Christ. Number two, if you're taking notes, believe I already have everything I need. Believe I already have everything I need. Now let me take a couple steps back. This does not mean that God never wants to give you new things or for you to have new things. Right? That's not what I'm saying. It just means that God wants you to learn how to be content with what you already do have. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Maybe you read a verse like this and you think, well, that's great for rich people, but how does that apply to me? I don't really have much of anything. Well, let me just remind you that when we consider the population of the world, what is it now, 8 or 9 billion people? If you have a car that gets you from point A to point B, if you have a roof over your head and food on your table, you are in the top 1% in terms of wealth globally. And so I think this verse applies very much to all of our lives. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud, not to trust in money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. And so our contentment should never be found in the material things that we have, but in the one who gives every good and perfect gift. And Paul is also telling Christians here that we shouldn't strive for the opposite. We we shouldn't have bad theology and strive to just be poor. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying, he's reminding that whatever your situation is, It's not saying one is better than the other. Whatever your situation is, rich or poor, our hope should be in Jesus for our joy, not in the material things that we have. Paul had everything that he needed to be content. At one point, it says he had plenty. He had more than enough. And at one point, he had almost nothing. He would learned how to be content. Again, writing and living in a Roman prison cell. I think we can take away from this that the only thing that anyone really, truly needs is Jesus. When we talk about needs, that's that's it. Number three, this will be the last one for today. Believe everything I have is temporary. Believe everything I have is temporary. And if you want to ride out to the the edge there, except for Jesus, you can. Believe everything I have is temporary. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 16 through 18 says that is why we never give up and he tells us something we already know about our lives and i think for the older among us this is maybe more of a struggle says though our bodies are dying so even though we're decaying even though we're, we're dying listen to this our spirits are being renewed every single day for our present troubles are small and won't last very long Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles that we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze, he's saying, we fix our eyes on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. I believe everything that I have is temporary. Paul was writing about something that's learned over time. Most of the things in this life are our jobs, our possessions, the illnesses that we have, uh, negative relationships. Guess what? You want some good news? They're temporary. They're not going to last forever. I love what one pastor said that you'll never see a U-Haul at a funeral. I've done many funerals since we've been here. And guess what? I've never seen a U-Haul at one of them. We don't get to take the things that we own with us when we die. That's what he's saying. Houses get old and they they fall apart. They need a new coat of paint every once in a while just to keep them together. Cars break down. Clothes wear out. I got some new clothes this weekend. Thankfully, I had these pair of jeans that I tried to throw on. And when I did, my wife pointed out there, there was a big hole in the butt. And uh, I don't think you want me wearing those on Sunday morning. (laughs) So I got some new clothes this week. Some clothes wear out. We don't take these things with us. Paul says that even our bodies, our physical bodies, are daily wasting away. I'm not getting any younger. None of us are. He says our spirit lasts, but not the bodies that we currently occupy. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't take care of these things. The things that God has given us, our homes, our jobs, possessions, our our bodies, we absolutely should take care of these. That's what it means to be a good steward. What I'm saying is that in the end, these things do not last. And that's why Paul encouraged his readers to fix their eyes elsewhere, to fix their eyes on the only thing that does. to relationship with Jesus and the promise of eternity. God wants us to focus on to think about and live our lives for him. Life is fleeting. It's short, but eternity is not. And Paul, I don't know if you noticed this. I think I may have noticed this for the first time when I read this passage this week, but he really focused on the spiritual and the invisible, not the material. Let me say that again. He he focused on the spiritual and the invisible, not on the material. I believe that God wants all Christians to learn what I'm going to call the art of contentment. Art takes time. It takes time to get better at, to improve. For us to learn contentment, we we must first identify all the things in our lives that will kill contentment. And two, this morning, chronic complaining. Are are you a chronic complainer? It kills contentment. It will cause you to miss out on the promises, the blessings, and the purpose of God in your life. Comparing will kill contentment. Instead of comparing our lives to others, we we need to learn how to be thankful for the things that God has given us. But there are also contentment conquerors. These are the things that you'd put on a t-shirt, not the other ones. Things that help us learn contentment. Learning contentment starts by choosing contentment in Jesus over contentment in the world. We should also believe the truth that we already have everything we need to be content. God is the one who gives every good and perfect gift. We can trust that he's already given us everything that we need and that he's going to continue to provide for our daily needs. And finally, we believe the truth that everything we have is only temporary. You'll never see a U-Haul at a funeral. So I want to reread this passage. And as I do, as we get to verse 13, I hope that you see it in a different light today. Philippians 4 11 through 13, not that I was ever in need for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. Let's read this together. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength morning.